Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Vladko Andonovsky, the U.S. women's national team coach. We've had some great guests lately, including Melissa Ortiz, Tom Statham, and Caroline Graham Hansen, so check those out. But first... We're up late tonight. Let's talk some soccer with my friend Chris Whittingham. You can hear on Univision, Inter-Miami Radio, the Dan Lebitard Show, and the Chelsea Mic'd Up podcast. Chris, it's 12.37 a.m. on Monday morning. The U.S. has just beaten Mexico 3-2 to in extra time in the Nations League final to win a trophy against their arch rival. How are you, my friend? I'm great. I'm trying to like keep my thoughts in order because if you had said to me on 30, really on 10 minutes, what is this podcast going to be? It's going to be a postmortem for the U.S. And like, there's probably like seven different podcasts that could have been done after varying points of the game. So trying to stay organized here, I I certainly don't envy your job as host of this program tonight because it could go in a million different directions. We'll just let it go in a few different directions. I mean, like, I, I just would say this, big picture here, huge win for the U.S., young U.S. team, hasn't played that many games together, has played... You know, these guys are playing for big clubs, but they don't have anything on their resume really yet until tonight. Down twice against Mexico, come back to win. Christian Pulisic earns a penalty in extra time. VAR calls it. Pulisic converts it. And then Ethan Horvath, substitute goalkeeper, comes on in in this game because Zach Steffen gets injured. Big saves late in the game and then saves a penalty from Andres Guardado that could have tied the game late and sent this game to a penalty kick shootout. And it's exhausting. I feel exhausted. It's such a... I don't care who you were rooting for in this game. It was an epic USA-Mexico Classico. And I think both teams are going to remember this for a while. And obviously the stakes weren't crazy high. It's the Nations League, first trophy of its kind awarded. And yet it still feels important for this U.S. team. No question. I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to look it up now. When's the last time the U.S. beat Mexico? I mean, I it, it hasn't happened in the Berhalter era. So you'd have to go back to the, you know, and we didn't beat them in World Cup. I, I say we Friendlies. forgive me. Friendlies. Yeah, friendlies. Yeah, I mean, forgive me. I mean, I I just said we. I'm meant to be an objective journalist. Occasionally, I'll do that with the U.S. But uh, the United States has not beaten them in in a competitive game in a very long time. Uh, and so the fact that they went and did it tonight is a massive achievement. Yeah, there's definitely bits of that performance that I didn't love. There's definitely right. selections from the manager that I didn't love. But in the end, and I, I think Charlie Davies did well to point this out on the CBS studio team over and over again at halftime, at full time, uh, and at the end of extra time, mental strength and what it took to bounce back in this game. Because, look, after the U.S. goes down 2-0 and VAR overturns correctly – uh, and an offside goal from Hector Moreno, it really looked like the game. If, if if not for VAR there, and this is, by the way, the one bit where I think we should say every time decisions went to VAR tonight, the correct decision was awarded. I don't yeah. love that handball against Reggie Cannon, but that's the way that the law is generally officiated. It was the correct decision in my view. But that's an instance where like, we don't talk enough about how VAR can, correct, like, can change games for the better. If that goal stands, it's 2-0. For me, game's over at that point. The U.S. needed that VAR review in order to win this game tonight. So massive, as uh, we're watching here on the televisions, the U.S. lift the trophy now. It's a really big moment, but again and again, they bounce back from really adverse situations. I thought a player in particular who I'd like to single out for bouncing back would be Mark McKenzie. Started off with a giveaway for the first goal, had another dreadful giveaway later. Seemed that at a certain point, it's just, I'm just going to get rid. Like, I don't, I don't want to take any chances, but defended well in, in, in important moments at times. So there was a lot of that young players. And look, Greg Berhalter took some stick the other night for saying, look, some of these guys have not been in this spot before. And oh, hang on a second. They're winning trophies in Europe. What are you talking about? How can this not? This is a different level. I think you saw it tonight. Some some players did not look up for that level. Even some players have done very well in Europe this year. So I, I think the fact that the U.S. was able to survive it, win the game, massive. Yeah, just a big statement, I think, for these guys. I mean, it's it's one thing to play for Barcelona and Juventus and Chelsea and, and the big clubs in Europe, 
but you still have to earn it on the field in a U.S. jersey. And this is the first example we've seen of these guys being able to do it. And, I, you know, I learned a lot about a few different players tonight. Weston McKinney, by the way, a threat on set pieces for the U.S. the entire night, gets the late equalizer in regular time to send it to extra time. And McKinney comes away from this game for me. Like, I still think long-term Tyler Adams is going to be the captain of this team, but you might as well call McKinney a vice captain because he's a leader for this team, clearly responded well to some of the nonsense that the Mexico players were perpetrating, uh, which, look, both sides perpetrate some of that stuff uh, in every game between these teams. It's why it's a great rivalry, but... uh, McKenney doesn't have any patience for any of that stuff. And then he gets the header on the corner kick right when it seemed like Linez had really taken the air out of the sails of this U.S. team. And to have a goalkeeper come on in a situation like that, make big saves as Ethan Horvath did to, to keep the U.S. in the game and then make the biggest save of all, Uh, This is a guy we don't know a heck of a a lot about, but what we do know is that he's had some big moments, Horvath, in Champions League, in fact, where uh, he came on for, he's out of contract, by the way, but but came on and had a big game that that won a game for his club in Europe, and... uh, and I remember him crying after the game, actually. It was such like a, a moment. Like he's a, this guy seems like a big time moment player. And whether or not he's going to be the starting keeper for the U.S., you're going to have moments like this where this is a team sport and everyone has to give something when they're called upon. And he certainly did in that moment. Yeah, he certainly, I think, probably established himself at worst as kind of a co-number one at this point. Like, I think Greg Berhalter now has a decision to make. Whereas before, because Zach Steffen, I thought, really impressed with Columbus crew, then earns a move to Manchester City. He's played for a year now under Pep Guardiola. You'd think, all right, you know, that's clearly his job. But Horvath, I mean, in some ways, you do have to respect the performances in the national team shirt. I think, again, if you're talking about a bouncing back narrative, Ethan Horvath concedes a goal. And very early, it feels like, well, hang on a second. You know, Ethan Horvath coming off the bench. This could be, you know, a rough night. And then really gets into the game on that long distance ever from Chucky Lozano that he saves really well. It was kind of onto him in a flash. I think he kind of felt like he had the time to get there, but then all of a sudden his arms are flying out because it was onto him so quickly. But that was kind of a really important save for him to make. And then to save from the penalty spot, I mean, it's it's incredible. Like to, You've basically won the game at that point. And now I imagine other factors to take into consideration, obviously his, his ability to distribute from the back. But it's not just this performance either. He played really well for the U.S. in their defeat to Switzerland, I thought. He made some really important saves to only have that game be 2-1 rather than 3-4 or 5 to the Swiss. So Ethan Horvath, all the credit in the world for coming off the bench and putting in that kind of performance. And let's talk a little bit about Christian Pulisic. I thought he was for the most part in this game sort of anonymous to the point where I actually tweeted fairly late in the game where's Christian Pulisic and he appeared Uh, he he (laughs) ends up drawing the penalty in extra time referee goes to VAR I'm curious to know what you thought about that like it looked and to me it looked like there was contact on that so to me it didn't seem like a bad call. No, not at all. And and I saw, I, I have some Mexican national team fans in my mentions because I tweeted, I'm stunned that he gave the penalty. I didn't, I'm, I didn't tweet that because I was stunned that that was the decision that was given. I tweeted that because I'm stunned the referee gave any decision that had an adverse effect on the game. He, The, the referee clearly did not want to be the reason why this game was decided. And in some respects, that is the cover that VAR offers, Right. Because you can go look at the screen and go, oh, VAR gave that decision, whereas the referee can kind of avoid that heat. I almost kind of wonder if he has to give that penalty at the end just because the the crowd was so rabid. We can get to the crowd in a moment, but um, the the crowd was so rabid that if he walks away from the video screen after three minutes and says no penalty, I think, you know, it would have been fairly ugly. But I, I just think that when you look at, I mean, first off, the game in extra time should be 10 v 10 because Hector Herrera should have been sent off if not once, twice, 
uh, <laughs> given that he put his hand on the throat of Weston McKinney, given that he slid into Ethan Horvath, and given that when he's on a yellow card, he goes crashing into, I, I want to say it was Reggie Cannon, but I don't remember specifically off the top of my head. Uh, either way, you know, Tata Martino very quickly subs him out because he was going to get a red card. He should have gotten a red card. The referee took an extraordinarily lenient view of the game. This is, you know, the reputation that CONCACAF has. This is the kind of game that their referees allow to have happen, and that is very much what we got tonight. The two teams kicked the hell out of each other. And, you know, so I was stunned that Pulisic ends up getting that penalty decision, but I don't think it happens without the aid of VAR. Again, good VAR that deserves credit, that has changed the game in the United States' favor, although it's really more in the fairness of the game's favor. That was a, that was a penalty. I thought Gio Reyna earlier in the game won a penalty, but the referee just didn't want to give it. He didn't want to be in, in, involved tonight in any way. It was fairly clear. So a good decision in my view, and also huge credit to Christian Pulisic. I agree with you. I thought he was anonymous tonight, as he was anonymous on Thursday against Honduras, but steps up in the biggest moment, takes a penalty to, to score the winning goal, and gets to lift a trophy as the captain of the U.S. men's national team. I don't think you can understate how big that is. Yeah, the CONCACAF Nations League is not nearly the UEFA Champions League. It's a brand new competition, that, you know, we just kind of made up. But you know what? You get to lift the trophy with your national team as the captain when both teams are playing their A squads and going for it. That's really big just in terms of where we're heading with the U.S. into September and World Cup qualifying. Yeah, I think this is less about the Nations League and a, and a first-time trophy. It's more about beating your arch rival, which Greg Berhalter had not done in two games against Mexico as the coach. And I think there's going to be moving forward a feeling among this u.s team look we can beat mexico in a game that both teams are taking seriously and and there's something invaluable in that um by the you way, know, by the way, very quickly, the last competitive win for the u.s against mexico was the dos acero in columbus in 2013 ahead of the 2014 yes. world cup that's yeah that, that's the last competitive win over mexico they they beat them in a friendly in 2018 uh was the last time they beat them period but yeah i mean that's that's eight years without a competitive win. And you can see, I mean, people criticize the Nations League. Why does this exist? Why does this happen? This game proves that if you say that this is competitive, that you will draw a competitive game out of two top-level opponents. So about the crowd, am I right in saying that it seemed like the crowd was trying to throw stuff at the U.S. players? Uh, well, it seemed like they were trying to throw stuff, period, given that they connected with a Mexican player as well. But yes, <laughs> they were absolutely... I mean, look, the U.S., goes and celebrates the goal. They're at home, so they should be able to do stuff with the crowd. But also, uh, we know which way that crowd was leaning. It was a very pro-Mexico crowd. You heard it throughout the match. Um, but that's nonsense. It's nonsense from the supporters. And this happens with the U.S. all the time. And I can't abide it when you combine it as well with the chants that stopped the game at one point that has persisted for nearing on 30 years, that the authorities do their best to try and stamp out, but it doesn't work. The behavior was terrible tonight. And I think we are now reaching the point where I think Mexico, the next time they play at home, or the next times they play at home, should be playing behind closed doors. It's time for it's time for the penalties to get severe because how many times are you, how many World Cups do we go into saying saying stop doing the chant? How many times do we go into U.S. Mexico you know hoping that the crowd doesn't get unruly? It does every time, and it and it's time for that to to stop, and it's time to do so with sanctions. I agree with you in principle, but I actually would point out, like if you were Mexico as a federation, yes. Most of these fans appear to be fans of your Mexican team, but they're probably American. And, and so it, it gets complicated, right? In terms mm -hmm. of like, how do you, like, do you punish fans, American fans who happen to be rooting for Mexico? Do you punish the Mexican Federation in home World Cup qualifiers that they host? It actually gets somewhat complicated it's less complicated it's less complicated when this stuff happens in estadio azteca right but um clearly you can't throw stuff at games i don't care if it's an nba game and you're throwing stuff at, at players i don't care if it's a soccer game and you're throwing stuff at players you can't do that and so yeah there was a real frustration there Gio reina got hit appeared to be slightly injured at first 
Um, and you know, we've seen this happen before when U.S. players have been the targets of uh, projectiles, debris, etc. And yeah, it's really frustrating. Um, so, you know, like, look, it, like we've seen a little bit of an advance, I guess, on the the P word chant uh, from from the Mexican fans, homophobic slur chant. Uh, players, the Federation campaigning against it. They want to avoid penalties. Uh, there was a, it seems arbitrary in which they actually enforce this and, and have a warning like both games for Mexico in the semifinal and the final, they've had it like at the 92nd minute. <laughs> yeah. um, so we'll see if they, if CONCACAF actually in FIFA takes this seriously enough, but um, it's, there's just, there's just so much to talk about with a, a game like this tonight. And I think for, you know, for me at least, there's going to be moments that I'm like, I wish that didn't happen. But my big takeaway from tonight is that like the USA-Mexico rivalry, it's there, man. And it's back. It is, it's back. It's strong. And that's not, I'm not saying that because the US won. I'm saying it because it was such a hard-fought, hard-edged game. And and I welcome that because we haven't seen the U.S. provide enough in the last few years to actually create that. Yeah, and ultimately, <laughs> rivalries need two combatants. And we've talked about a generation of young Americans that need to come through and provide that. And I think at times you see a little bit of the danger in that. I mean, the U.S., and and I think Andres Cordero is right to kind of make this tournament about this generation of young players. The U.S. Twitter account has very much made this every time they tweet out the lineup. They tell you just how young it's the second youngest ever. It's the youngest ever to start in a in a, in a final. Uh, and they're emphasizing the youth of this team. But I do think at times you see where the youth. Um, it can be a bit of a rocky ride, and you have to survive those kinds of moments. And CONCACAF is not the same as Europe. And I know that you know a lot of people who think that the European game is the pinnacle of the game, which it very much is, uh, thinks that that it automatically makes it harder. It doesn't. And games in this region are different, and you have to go through your tests, your battles. And you're going to have to suffer through away at Honduras. That's going to be a tough one. No matter how good the team is, no matter how good the team is, it's going to be tough to go away in CONCACAF and play games in these kinds of settings. It's never going to look that pretty. It, look, the, the U.S. scored all three goals in theory from set pieces tonight, right? Two headers, from, two headers and a penalty. That's how they scored tonight. That's how you win an international competition, and that is how you win in CONCACAF. So um, it's not going to be pretty at times, but the U.S. with the young generation, gets a huge win under their belt, so they feel a measure of confidence heading into another match of this magnitude, of which there will be nine over the course of three months in this fall. Can I say one thing here? And I tweeted this out right before kickoff. I, I, I was scared about Tim Ream. And, and you were right it, to be. And, and this proved to be true. And, and Tim Ream's a good dude who's like had you know a long career um, in England. Uh, I just, I don't think he's at this level. It's a little bit like his experience with Fulham. He's not, at this point, a, a full Premier League starter. You know, he's a good championship player, but I, I, I just feel, I felt queasy about him starting this game. I said that. And then Lainez ends up beating him pretty easily on, on the goal to put Mexico ahead 2-1. to one. And I just... I just have to think Greg Berhalter has other options. He has to. He has to. And look, I, I actually would have defended him before he took off Serginho Dest to put on Tim Weah, right? I, I would have said, you know what? You want to play a back three system. If anything, I was a little bit upset that if you're gonna if you're gonna put Ream there because of his positional awareness of that left center back role, then put him with Anthony Robinson at left wing back. So that you have, at the very least, a little bit of a combination that's familiar with each other, that knows the system. Fulham played that system for most of the year to reasonable effect. Look, they got relegated, but they weren't a bad team in terms of their quality of performances. So, at the very least, that like that would have made some sense, right? But then, you move to a back four, and you take Serginho Dest off so you can make Tim Ream the out-and-out -out left back, which is basically saying, Tecatito Corona, Uriel Antuna... And 
I'm sorry. I and, and Diego Linus, just have a go. Like it's like it's a neon green light. This spotlight is at this left back position. Have a go at this guy. And again and again, like I think I'm gonna wake up in the middle of the night tonight with the phrase X is one v one against Tim Ream. Like I was terrified. And when Tyler Adams came on and Kellen Acosta moves to left back, I think that's kind of further sinking in deeper. Like Greg Berhalter at that point is just saying, all right, we need to find someone who's going to play left. Acosta, you go out there. Like, I wonder how many minutes Kellen Acosta trained at left back. They have, they have what, three in this team? If, if Ream is one, then you have Dest, you have Anthony Robinson, and you have... Tim Ream. So Kellen Acosta is your fourth choice left back, and you're just all right. We're we're you know re- reshuffling all the jigsaw pieces here. It kind of gave a a hint that Greg Berhalter was just kind of managed managing this game to manage this game, not because there's any bigger plan there. And that was a real concern for me because I thought Tim Ream. You're right. He's it's not it's not his level. And I understand that Aaron Long is hurt, so you're trying to make up for the fact that you don't have your two natural center backs. You feel good playing a back four with. That being said, Brooks and McKenzie were just fine for me. They're also playing a strikerless system, which is not conducive to playing a back three because that means defenders are going to be all over the place chasing the game. Um, after you know they, they move Chucky Lozano to play as that false nine, I just thought in general the tactics there were not what the game called for, and I you know the fact we didn't see Eunice Musa at any point in this tournament was upsetting to me. Kind of makes me wonder what the cap-tying situation is there because it means that the U.S. couldn't cap-tie either until the Gold Cup or until World Cup qualifying, which makes me wonder if options are open there. Um, and, uh, like, it, just overall, I thought Greg Berhalter did not have a great night despite the fact that they won. No, it's an interesting point. I, I mean, I would say this. I, I, I can't totally give Mark McKenzie a free pass because you can't start a game the way he did. Oh, no, he was and, yeah, dreadful and, and, for the first 10 minutes. And go down a minute into the game. Um, and that's terribly frustrating. And it's also of a piece with the U.S.'s history in Burhalter's era against Mexico of not being able to play out of the back, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's got to get cleaned up. Um that said, I'm not ready to write off McKenzie like I am Reem. And, and, and so, like, I, I think he's got a future with this team. Um, and, you know, we'll see. I mean, Chris Richard is obviously a guy who, once he gets healthy, should be an option at center back. Uh, long when he gets healthy. Um, you know, I, we'll see about other guys. You know, I mean, Miazga is a guy who at least has experience, but... You know, a guy maybe you can call on if you need to, but not somebody you want to be the the starter for the A squad. Um, and, you know, like, there's going to be some questions about U.S. players, but for me it was good to see Tyler Adams get on in the field when it was important late. And, and he did, you know, he didn't totally stand out, but I think his ability to cover ground is really important. And I just can't wait until he's in a position where he can start again. And I think this U.S. team has really missed him, actually. Um, you know, just you know, due to his injury situation. But um, but this was a big. Still, overall, I think this team's going to take something very positive out of what happened tonight. As crazy as it was, it was sort of peak Concacaf, and. Do I think Serginho Des still needs to experience what it's like going to play a World Cup qualifier at Honduras? Yes, and a few other guys too, and it's going to be pretty eye-opening to them because it's not like what they're used to, but you're going to have to get results in those situations. Tonight was a little bit like that, you know? This is CONCACAF, and uh, you, you can't really explain it verbally uh, you have to experience it. Yes, that that I mean, they should put that on the bumper sticker for Concacaf. <laughs> you have to experience it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, and it was you know huge moments for everyone. I, I think we should also give credit to the performance that Gio Reyna gave tonight. We we mentioned he got hit in the face, but I mean, really, he scored the opening goal, uh, which was a great reaction from from the corner. Uh, and just generally, I thought for the moments that he was on the pitch, 
was by far the best player for the United States in terms of being able to control the game, create opportunities, and open up windows. I thought he was great. Josh Sargent, I continue to be blown away by his running. Want to see him find some end product. Had a couple of chances, neither of which you could really say he has to score that, but popped up in some good areas. So uh, I, I thought there were a few U.S. players that did themselves well tonight. Um, Weston McKenney, I, I want to see him find the game a bit more in, from open play. Like, I do think in moments where, man, the U.S. is not really controlling in midfield are moments where I'm kind of wondering where missed, where Weston McKinney is and kind of being able to accomplish that goal. You wonder how much that is helped by Tyler Adams, but still, he's a player of a quality playing at a high enough level that you kind of want to see him do that of his own volition, not needing some help around him. So I want to see a bit more in terms of controlling the game from him. But yeah, I mean, there's some positives to take to, uh, from tonight, but there are still a few moments where I think even John Brooks looked ropey at times. Uh, everyone in that back five had their turn at being, you know, untrustworthy, I guess you can say. I mean, you know, DeAndre Yedlin was very up and down, struggled to really control the ball when the U.S. went it back. Um, so... Really, and even Zach Steffen, there was one moment where Zach Steffen was on the ball. He looked like, you know when you watch baseball and a shortstop takes like three like pump fakes out of his glove and very softly tosses it over to first base and the guy running to first base like just misses being saved by a step. Zach Steffen had one of those moments where he's just kind of casually taking a little jab step and then all of a sudden Andres Guardado is onto him and it's like, dude, like if you give away the ball there, you know that they score, right? So he, he's, he's very casual at times on the ball. Uh, so, I mean, not overwhelmingly positive, not, overwhelming, not overwhelmingly negative, and ultimately the result is you end up feeling good about having won a trophy in CONCACAF and beating Mexico in a competitive game. Yeah. In the end, there's so much to talk about in a game like this. I feel like we've done that uh, to an extent here. I'm exhausted mentally uh, <laughs> having watched it, but I'm glad I watched it. Um and uh, we've got a good interview coming up here with Latko Andonovsky. So I'm going to sign off and we will go to that. But thank you very much for joining me, Chris. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Latko Andonovsky. Our guest now is Vladko Andonovsky, the U.S. women's national team coach whose team meets Portugal this Thursday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on FS1 with games against Jamaica and Nigeria after that, as we get closer and closer to the Olympics starting July 21st in Japan. Vlatko, great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Grant, great seeing you too. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited uh, to hear all your questions. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, lots to talk about, obviously. Uh, you have these three games left before you announce an 18-player roster for the Olympics. That's five fewer players than you have for the World Cup. How hard is that process for you right now? Or or do you think you've already made some of the, the toughest decisions in your head already? I mean, until the, the roster is done, no decisions are made. So yes, we we, we as, as staff and myself personally go through so many different scenarios and we go through so many different uh, um possibilities and we play games in our head and how the games are going to look and what and we play through every possible position or every every person uh, individually and uh, just last night uh, I had a conversation uh, with uh, one of the one of the coaches and uh, he asked me for the first time he was like how cl close are you and I said I have about 12, 18, uh, diff, uh, 18 men, uh, 18 player rosters uh, in my head right now that I can tell you that, that are good enough. Uh, and so, so the decision is not made. Uh, we're still going through it and uh, it's not easy, but uh, I feel comfortable in our process. I feel comfortable, that, uh, confident saying that uh, we've done our due diligence uh, and we've done our work. We've done our research, analysis, uh, everything possible to make sure that, uh, that the decision that we make is going to be the best decision for the team. Is it going to be the right decision? I hope so. I mean, uh, my expertise allows me to say, yes, I believe it's going to be the right decision. But uh, I guess we, we will not know until the Olympics are done. I, I, I'm curious to know, does having only 18 players cause you to put more value on players who can play multiple positions? It's uh, I mean, it helps in some ways, but uh, 
the the process uh, or of picking the players is a lot more detailed than just uh, looking at versatility. So for for us, we have a a chart of uh, 15 boxes, and some boxes are bigger, some boxes are smaller, some boxes uh, way more, some less, and uh, so, you know some uh, have more importance than the, than the other. So for for us, when we look at it, uh, the the first thing that we look at is the health. Is the person healthy or not? Uh, that's a very important thing. Then it's uh, whether the, the player is fit or not. Then it goes into performance. Uh, how good are they? Uh, how well they, 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 they perform? Then we look at the position and uh, the competition in the certain position because some, some player may be really good uh, uh, defender, but we already have nine good defenders. So uh, then we go versatility and uh, we have two types of versatility. The one box is versatility along the line, whether it's a uh, center back playing right back and vice versa. But then we have versatility uh, or ability to play different lines. Can a, can a defender play a midfielder or vice versa? Then we have durability. Uh, obviously, it's, uh, it's not a secret that we have players uh, that, that are over 30 and uh, how durable are they? Uh, what is their uh, what is their history of injuries, uh, especially in big tournaments uh, like uh, Olympics and in uh, the uh, World Cups? Then we have uh, form that they're in. I mean, it is extremely important for us uh, what kind of form they're coming into because we we know that they're all good players, but at certain time they they. Um, perform dif uh, uh, different and uh, it's important to for us to know what form they're coming in then we um, we uh, we also have a box in terms of how well they fit in the team knowing and understanding uh, our game model knowing and understanding our game idea and implementing the the, the model the team the principles uh, uh, of our team on the field, then uh, how well they, they fit against certain opponents. We know the opponents, uh, at least the first three. Hopefully, we move on and we have a fourth one and fifth one and sixth one. But then we, we have to, uh, we first we look at how, how the player fits against certain opponents uh, and then possible opponents uh, in the knockout rounds. Then we, we go um, experience. I think experience is another box, uh, but also... Uh, contrary to that is the, the the future potential. So it's very very rare that you have experience and potential future potential. I guess if you're in the in the the, the range of 26 to 29 year old, you probably check both boxes uh, with experience and potential. Uh, but then we have partnership with other players, impact on the team environment, culture, trainings, etc. And the, the last one is the, the special quality. There's sometimes players have a special quality that I feel that we will need it for a few times during the tournament that uh, will help us win games. So all these uh, elements or segments uh, are uh, coming in play when we're making decisions uh, for uh, roster spot. You just gave me more detail than any U.S. coach for the men's or women's team in 25 <laughs> years has ever given me on how they decide these things. So thank you. That was really interesting. <laughs> um, that's I mean, fascinating. Um, I mean, that's, uh, that's the work that we do. I mean, the, so it's obviously I can't tell you what player possess what qualities or where they fit in, but these are the boxes. It's... Uh, it's not just oh so so and so played a good game uh, last week. She, she should be on the on the on the team. Yes, let's see. There there right. there, there are more more boxes that the, the person needs to check before she gets selected. I, when I talk to your players, they talk about the work that you do. They have a lot of respect for how you go about the day to day work and and communicate stuff. Sort of like you just communicated on when I asked you. Um, you you talk about principles what are some of these principles that that you you have for how you want your team to play i mean uh, so everything that we do uh, starts from the uh, game idea obviously uh, when i came when i when i took this job i had a certain idea of how i wanted this game to be played and uh, based on the game idea i developed the the game model which uh, which is uh, the team tactical principles and uh, these principles uh, 
they i mean uh there's something that uh that myself with the staff have developed or are uh, tweaking and modeling to uh to define the team or to define the style of play for uh, for our team now you know i wouldn't go into into certain details but uh it is important uh that first that the the players understand the principles and then uh actually the most important is for me to be able to teach the principles for them to understand the principles and the most important thing is for them to implement the principles and uh, those principles can be for in every phase and uh, not can be they are in every phase of the game there the, we have attacking principles defending principles uh we have principles in transition uh, and uh we actually go in uh, so many details that we have principles in uh, every segment of the game and uh we with uh, every situation that occurs during a uh, during a game we have principles of how we uh how we solve uh the problems i want to push you on a little more than that though is it is it possible to you don't need to give me like everything but like when it like when when you have the ball and when you don't have the ball like you know like what or, or when you're in transition, what are some of the, the the sort of most important things that you want your team to do? I mean, let, let's say in transition, one one principle uh, would be regaining possession of the ball as soon as possible. Now that would be a principle, which is pretty common principle now in in modern soccer or or a trend. Now there's a way of doing that, like different teams do that in different ways. And uh, we have our way, you know, I'm sure that some other teams do it same or similar as us, but uh, we have sub principles that, so the, the principles are general idea of how the, we want, what we want the team to do, but then the sub principles goes into line. So what are the forwards doing? What are the midfielders doing? What are the defenders doing? But then for us, we go into sub sub principles or we call them individual responsibilities. They every single player on the field needs to know uh, in regards to where the situation uh, occurs, where the action occurs, uh, what area of the field, what uh, their responsibilities. So it, it sounds very important to you that players know their roles to a very specific it's, sense. It's, it's important to me, but uh, it's uh, very important to, to them. They want to know these details because uh, they want to walk on the field knowing that uh, they're prepared. Um, you mentioned, you know, one of your categories is just health. You know, like you have two players in particular right now, Tobin Heath and Julie Ertz, who have health concerns. So far, it's based on what I've seen said publicly, is that Julie Ertz is likely to be available for the Olympics it sounds like there's some real concern about Tobin Heath. Where is she? Actually, she is doing very good, and okay. uh, good. she's going to be uh, she's going to be with us in uh, Houston and Austin. And uh, she's not going to be fully integrated in uh, in trainings, but the fact that she's going to be with the team training uh, is very positive. And uh, we're going to have another 30 days after that, uh, at that point, to build up her fitness. So that will be, at that point, uh, once, uh, once she's done with uh, the team training or uh, with uh, the training uh, in camp, the only thing that is going to be left is going to be building fitness, which uh, I, uh, I'm pretty confident that uh, if not 90 minutes, uh, we're going to have her for a good uh, 65, 70 minutes every game. Okay, great to hear. Um... I'm wondering in the big picture, sort of your history over the years, who or what has had the biggest influence on you and how you want your teams to play? Now, as, a, as coaches or as a coach, uh, you, uh, when, you, uh, when you think about uh, how you want to uh, coach this game or how you want to approach the game, how you want to teach... Uh, uh, whether you like it or not, you're influenced by a lot of things. Uh, you're influenced by uh, your background, culture, uh, coaches that have been coaching you, coaches uh, that uh, that you've been surrounded with, uh, players, uh, players that you played with or against, uh, community, uh, culture. So there, there's so many things that uh, that influence you as a coach, and I, I believe it's the same way with uh, with me. It's not that 
I uh, something that uh, I grew. Uh, I woke up one morning and said, "Okay, this is how it is to, uh, I need to play." And now, when I when I look at my my game model or when I look at my game uh, game idea, is uh, it's got segments from my uh, coaching or playing. Uh, uh, experience it's got uh, influence from my uh, from the culture from my background uh, growing up in macedonia or ex-yugoslavia um it's got influence from uh, from the players that i'm surrounded with now so there's, there's a little bit uh, uh, a little things sprinkles from every little thing that, uh, that have influenced me to to coach in a way or to approach the game in a way that i that i have uh, so far and I don't know if all of my listeners know about how you came to live in the United States. How, what's that story? <laughs> it's uh, it's actually a very interesting story. Now, every time I think about it, I think it's funny. Um, uh, a very good friend of mine uh, who I played with uh, back home in the, in the, in the youth ranks uh, came here uh, for, um, in college. And when he graduated from college, he, uh, he signed with uh, Wichita Wings. Uh, indoor soccer team and he called me to uh, for my birthday to just to say happy birthday and we get into a conversation and he he asked me to come and join him and first I was like yeah sure what is it and uh, he's telling me all these things and I'm like you know that that, that sounds uh, interesting but it, it, it was almost like he was withholding the 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 main information from me and that was that this was indoor with walls <laughs> And at the end, when he told me that, I'm like, absolutely not. I'm like, are you out of your mind? Like, I, at that point, I was, uh, I just made the the national team pool, and uh, I felt good about myself. And I'm like, I need to tell all the reporters, I, I need to tell my family that I'm gonna go, I'm gonna leave all of this and go and play soccer with Wolves. And I'm like, like this, this is not happening, right? Like that, like this, this is a joke, right? What do you mean walls? Like you don't put walls. Like how do you play soccer? So it was, a, it was a, a little confusing, but at the same time funny, right? And uh, after uh, a week later, two weeks later, he calls me again, and we're having this conversation. He goes, so he goes, listen, you you love to play. I know you love to play. Like this is, uh, you know, indoor is like uh, as a defender, you're gonna be like point guard in the in basketball so you organize everything and and that got me seriously like oh my gosh like <laughs> this is awesome like I, i'm gonna try this I, i'm going for it and uh the, the fact that the league was not uh, connected with fifa back then in my mind i was like it's a new challenge it's a different challenge i'm going for it and if i don't like it i go i come back and i'll be fine the uh, I, I can always come back and play and uh, I came here and I fell in love with it. It, it was awesome. I enjoyed it, had a lot of fun, and just kept moving on. So as a Kansas City Comets fan going back to the early 1980s, that's where I got into the sport. Um, like, I'm glad that you came to Kansas City and that the Wichita Wings, you know, they were evil and terrible. I hated them. <laughs> but, um, but I'm glad, that, you know, you, you ended up having this good experience with indoor soccer became part of the Kansas city community. But like, like there, you know, there was never really much of an idea at that point that you might someday coach the U S women's national team. Like, 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 like how did yeah. like the coaching stuff happen? And like, how did you end up moving in this direction? Yeah. So I never thought that I'm going to coach the, the U S women's national team back then, but I didn't know that, I'm going to be a coach. I don't, I don't know what, I don't know when, I don't know how, but I wanted to coach. I mean, every opportunity I had, I wanted to coach. Uh, obviously, I started coaching youth soccer uh, right away. But I, uh, this is probably uh, the first time I just remembered uh, the first year, no, year two, I, I was injured and Comets had tryouts for new players and, and uh, the coach was busy. So I went and was like, coach, if you don't mind, I would be more than happy to run trials. Like I'll organize it. I'll, I'll put, and he looked at me like, sure. You know, like, what would you do? And I told him like, yeah, that would be great. So like, I, I just loved coaching even back then. Like I was at, at some point, I was the one annoying player that, every time had an opinion and wanted to get the players and organize regardless of what we do. So I, I was almost certain that I, I will be a coach. I didn't know what level, 
when, where, and how, but I knew I was going to coach. It's an amazing story because like you put in the time, you put in the work, and you did it at levels that people might be surprised sort of how how low they were as a, as a coach. Like what was sort of the, the, the lowest level that you coached at at one point? You know, it's, it's interesting uh, because uh, uh, people are surprised when they, when they ask me, even in non, uh, like a uh, relaxed, informal conversation, when I tell them they're thrown away. And in some ways they're a little bit surprised that I'm sharing uh, all the, all the details. I'm not ashamed or afraid that, I, that it, what levels I coach. Yes, uh, I started with U6 recreational uh, girls soccer team, and I'm proud of it. I, and uh, I've coached the seven years old and the eight years old and 10 years old and 15. And I will tell you how 17 and 18s uh, get developed. And I can talk about uh, college players. I can talk about semi-professional teams and I'll talk about professional teams and I can talk about the national teams on top of that. I mean, uh, I'm very proud of everything that I've been through, and uh, I'm. Uh, I can. I feel. Uh, I don't. I don't want to say um, total coach. There is no such a thing, but I feel confident that I can talk about every level of development, regardless of the the, the area, regardless of uh, uh, where uh, where they're coming from, and uh, I feel like in every position that I was in. I learned something, whether it was the, the recreational six-year-old or winning championship with uh, Kansas City. I mean, it's amazing. You you know, you ended up coaching in the NWSL, won championships with Kansas City, go to Seattle, get this job uh, with the U.S. women's national team. Now, one thing that I have been told by people is that if you ever play pickup soccer today with them, that you are, one, extremely competitive still and two that you like to talk a lot uh on on the fields sometimes at the opponents is is this accurate both of them are very accurate and i enjoy both of them i enjoy being competitive and enjoy talking trash uh when things are going my way <laughs> great i like it i mean one thing that i, I is always a little hard maybe sometimes to explain to us fans not always because they they're smart but like is as competitive as the sport is for on the us women's national team that the training sessions every day are also ultra competitive and sometimes even more competitive than some of the opponents are like i i Totally agree with that. How do you handle that? Like, do you ever like do you ever have to regulate that at all, or do you try and increase it I, to, as much as possible? I'll share a story. So, my very first training session with the national team. Obviously, I come from the league where it's fairly competitive league, and I had a chance to work with some of the players or play against some of them. So, I felt like I have a pretty good idea of the level. So we go into the very first training session. It's uh, in Columbus, Ohio, uh, before the Sweden game. And uh, we, we put, a, uh, we put a, the activities, uh, the warm-up, everything. And now we're going into play. I mean, the, the intensity and the level of competitiveness was something that I've never seen or experienced in my life as a player or a coach or spectator. So I... Uh, I called uh, the assistant coach and uh, I called uh, the goalkeeper coach. Graham was uh, still with us back then. And uh, I said, am, am I seeing something different or this is getting out of hand? And Graham literally, I mean, like nothing happens. Like, oh, it's always like this. <laughs> and literally just brushed it off. And I'm like, it's too much. But, you know, I didn't say anything. The, 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 the practice finished. We go into a session review. We're watching videos and uh, we have the videos on the, on the board. Before I start analyzing, I said, okay, ladies, there, uh, one thing, okay, things were getting a little bit out of hand there. You know, it was a little bit too much. And I looked at them and they, they all have a smile on their face. And uh, I'm like, am I missing something? And uh, Carly was, uh, I, I said, Carly, can you please help me out? And she goes, oh, just wait until January. 
And at that point, I, I, I didn't understand what she meant. I, I was like, okay, yeah. so we went into the review. What, what she meant by that was it was no, the end of November. It was uh, the World Cup year after victory tour, after long NWSL season. The players are exhausted mentally, physically, in any way possible. Uh, someone were injured, knocked out. I mean, all like different ways. Uh, little, little, little knocks and uh, bruises and everything. So, uh, the, what she meant was just wait because at that point we're getting ready for the Olympics in uh, 2020. Right. January is when they kick it back up, and that's when the the real competition starts. And <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, what is January going to look like? And I got to tell you, January was battlefield. <laughs> oh my gosh, like. It, but you know what? Now, at that point, like November was, oh, wow, like what is this? Now, if it's any other way, I would be disappointed because hmm. it is competitive, but it's very controlled. Like they they just, it's not the, as much as the, the love to, to win, it's hmm. the, the, the hate of losing. Like they, they're not, we're not talking about losing games. So it's just losing individual battle or, or not doing something right or not doing something up to the standards is what what bothers them so it's it's good it's good environment is is there something like pia sundhaga used to say this when she coached the u.s team and she called it that american thing and i think sometimes here we're very self-conscious in the united states about where we stand in soccer I think more self-conscious on the men's side, to be honest, than the women's side. But um, this idea that there are some sort of American cultural traits or or maybe stereotypes, but that that can help on the soccer field. Is, is there something to that with this women's team, at least in terms of the culture? <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, there, there are values that, that have been established on this uh, in this environment, on this team, long before I got here or long before any of them got here or most of them got here. Okay, These are values or, or, or culture or uh, principles that have been established in 1990 and 1999 and 2000s and if, even now with, with the players that... that, that, that uh, they're coming in. They're just nurturing that the culture is that bloodbath mentality and the 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 mentality of nobody works harder than us. Okay, that doesn't mean that we're not gonna play good soccer and be creative. That doesn't mean that we're not gonna have uh, Rose Lavelle's and Megan Rapinos and Tobin Hits and all. And but there are certain things that we're not gonna step away from, and that's who we are. Like we. We're not doing anything wrong. We're just hard workers. Like, yeah, we we will be creative. We will be attractive. We will do things, uh, exceptional things, but we will work harder than anyone else. Am I right also in sensing that you spend your coaching staff a lot of time on set pieces and in designing set pieces? To I've seen you celebrate a few times on the sideline when you've had a, a what's clearly a, a, a plan work to lead to a goal on a set piece. Is is that accurate? Yes, we we do spend uh, time on it. We were very methodical in the way we execute set pieces, both defensively and offensively, in the very very detailed. Interesting, interesting. Um, just a couple more questions here. Really appreciate the time uh, here with Latko and Donovsky. Um, another question for you. The, the women on this U.S. team are strong, successful women. They've also had a history over the years of, of occasionally being difficult with coaches they don't like uh, and even trying to push out coaches they don't like. The, the top players say very positive things about you, that they respect the work you do with them. Were you aware sort of of this history over the years with, with certain coaches that they've had? And, and how do you sort of approach your job with them? You know, they, they're very uh, strong women. They are, they're, they are uh, outspoken. They're 
they're fighters. They're not afraid of anything. And uh, I love their approach. And, uh, you know, I, I love the, the fact that uh, they don't want anything uh, uh, out of the ordinary. They just, they just want what they deserve. Like, uh, they deserve the best. Like, they want the, the best coach, the best uh, uh, teacher, the best treatment. They want the, the best preparation and, uh, uh, because they want to be the best. They want to be individually be the best version of themselves, but also as a team want to be the best over and over and over, regardless of the competition. So for me, their, their demands uh, are something that I enjoy because it pushes me to be the best version of myself. In, in order for me to come and, uh, and coach uh, uh, players that have been in this system for a while, like in Pino or Carly or Alex, Tobin, I have to be the best. Like, I, like, and the thing is, you can't fake it. You can't wing it. Like, they're, they're, they're going to see right through it. I mean, they've seen all kinds of things. So you either be the best and be the, 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 as prepared as you can get and help them prepare the, the best possible way, or you have no chance. I do want to ask you about your, your country. Uh, Macedonia is in the Euros. They've qualified. They recently beat... Um, Germany in a in a World Cup qualifier, uh, which was very impressive. Uh, what's that going to be like for you to watch during the Euros? I mean, it's it's going to be exciting. The, the first game is uh, actually on the on the game day for us, but uh, it's uh, it's interesting because uh, game days usually is a, are the most relaxed days for uh, for us as a technical staff because most of the work is done up until the night before the game. So on game day, I'll have a couple of hours to enjoy and cheer uh, Macedonia against uh, Austria. It's going to be the first ever game uh, from that caliber. And uh, it will be interesting to see and not just see the game, but also hear the environment, the, the atmosphere in the country as well. Now I'm really excited to watch all the Euro games coming up um, this next month here. Um, obviously, the NWSL season is still young, but I know you watch all the games. Uh, is there anything about the league or the games you're seeing that has stood out to you so far this season? I think the quality of the games uh, is amazing. Usually, it takes a uh, few rounds until the, the players get played in and uh, they get into a rhythm or the teams are in sync. The, 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 but uh, now, because they, they had a long preseason and because... Uh, um, because of the Challenge Cup, I think it was very helpful. So, by, you know, in game one, you already see teams firing, uh, firing on, the full, on full cylinders, on all cylinders. I mean, they're, they're, they're moving on quick. So that's very good for me because it gives me a better idea of the form of the players. I, I know that's a big part of, of what you're doing when you're not with your U.S. team is, is watching games, games in the U.S., games in Europe. You know, we just saw Macario and her team, Leon, going up against PSG and Alana Cook uh, this past week. Um, what else do you do for your work when you're not with your team? Oh, what do I do? So, obviously, we're preparing uh, for camp. So, anytime we prepare for camp, it takes uh, about, uh, it depends on how many games, uh, anywhere between four and six weeks to everything prepared to gather all the scouting information to process them uh, and uh, dissect them and, uh, and uh, uh, compile them uh, in a way so we can present it to the, uh, to the players to prepare uh, the game plans for each, uh, each team uh, individually. Uh, so those are the things. So once we do that, uh, once we have the game plan, then we go into the, the training plan for the, for the camp. So uh, the, we uh, establish the, the topics, the, the goals for, for the camp. And uh, once we're once we're done with that, we go into uh, content for the meetings. We prepare our meetings, uh, the ones that we can ahead of time, so we can uh, uh, so so we can complement uh, the things that we want to achieve on the field. So that's uh, from the from the camp camp perspective. But uh, also we uh, like uh, like you said, we watch every game uh, in NWSL. Uh, we travel to 80% of them. There is uh, someone from the technical staff that uh, goes and watches live. 
we we meet uh, once or twice a week, depends on how many games uh, there are throughout the week, uh, to uh, speak about the players that are already on the team, players that are on the bubble, and we also uh, have a list of players that uh, we call them futures that. Uh, uh, we believe have potential to be on this team uh, at some point uh, after the um, after the Olympics. So those are the those are the things that that we that I do, and uh, I continue educating myself in any way possible. I, I attend lots of seminars. Uh, uh, I listen to a lot of speakers uh, live Zoom and. Uh, read read a little bit i uh, uh i started my uh, phd so hopefully wow. I, I i i froze it uh, about four weeks ago so i can uh, focus on the on the olympics but uh, right after the olympics i'm going to continue that what's the phd in in sports leadership nice that's very cool um thank you well I am, I'm a Kansas Cityan. I know you are a Kansas Cityan now. Like in what ways are you a Kansas Cityan? I mean, I love everything about Kansas City. I love uh, Kansas City sports. Uh, I'm sure everybody knows. Uh, I love the Chiefs. Uh, I love the Royals. I, I, uh, love, I love sporting, go to their games, KC women's soccer team. Okay, they're always going to have special plays in my, uh, uh, in my heart. Same with, uh, with the Comets. I love KC barbecue. I love everything about Kansas City. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. We like to hear that here. Vladko Andonovsky is the U.S. women's national team coach. His team plays Thursday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on FS1 against Jamaica. Vladko, thanks so much for joining me. Grant, thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Vladko Andonovsky as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.